I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. episode I'm joined by Jonathan Crowe QC. We discuss the different stages of his award-winning career, the high-level work he has been involved in, and go over some of the legal basics. Okay, so from my understanding your practice straddles a broad range of litigation and I was wondering can you give me an overview of the type of work that you do and is it unusual to do such a wide range? Um, yes and yes. Uh, so most sensible barristers uh, specialise a little bit more uh, and a little bit more as their career progresses so that they have some kind of sort of unique selling point so they can say you know I am the specialist on some particular subsection of a subsection of an area of the law. Almost entirely by accident, I've ended up doing exactly the opposite. Uh, so I started out doing, when I was a junior junior in the uh, 80s, I started out doing a relatively narrow area of company law. And as things happen, you sort of get a kind of job and then you get another kind of job and different things come together to lead you in a particular direction through no necessary planning. And I ended up doing quite a lot of a sort of corporate regulatory work for um, clients who had got themselves into difficulties with regulators and with government bodies. And as a result of that, I spent quite a lot of time appearing against government bodies and regulators. And then after a bit, I started getting instructed by government bodies and regulators. And in 1998, I was appointed as first treasury council, which is a very odd appointment um, under which you're essentially a sort of a kind of ghostwriter for the attorney general. So the attorney general is the government legal advisor and will always be a qualified lawyer, but not always a practicing lawyer. And a convention developed quite a long time ago uh, that the attorney general would always have somebody, a full-time barrister, a full-time practicing barrister 
who would be his kind of standing ghostwriter, basically. Uh, and um, one provides advice to government through the Attorney General, quite often, in fact, in a sense, bypassing the Attorney General in the sense that, uh, not, not intentionally keeping the Attorney in the dark, but simply the, there is so much legal stuff going on with the government, not all of it passes the Attorney's desk. So first Treasury Council is this um, strange appointment where one remains self-employed, but one only has one client, which is, is, is the government. And because of the nature of government work, I suddenly flipped from doing sort of largely corporate regulatory company competition law to doing human rights and immigration and um, a huge range of judicial review and public law. And that is a career that normally leads you to becoming a judge. Um, but I did it for about nine years and um, there's no fixed term uh, to, to the, the appointment. Um, but at some point they feel, you know, you've kind of done your time um, and you normally originally would get kind of patted on the back and told you were going to be a judge the next Monday. Um, but under the Tony Blair administration, they introduced a new Judicial Appointments Commission under which you now have to apply to become a judge. In the old days, literally, it was a phone call from the Lord Chancellor. Um, but they introduced the Judicial Appointments Commission, which is an independent body, which has been set up to appoint judges, because the idea was that having judges appointed by somebody in government was not a, a good idea. And so the Judicial Appointments Commission gets set up, which means that you, instead of getting a phone call saying, it's you on Monday, uh, you have to fill out a very long application form. And the moment one starts having to fill out an application form, it makes you concentrate quite hard about how, 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 how badly you actually want the appointment. Uh, and I realized, to be frank, I didn't want to be a full-time judge. So I ended up going back into private practice, having done some corporate commercial media competition law uh, in my uh, younger days, but then a lot of public law and um, uh, government work uh, through Treasury Council. So I came out of that period with no specialization at all. And I enjoyed it um, because uh, doing only one thing uh, certainly gives you uh, an area of expertise, but it does give you a lot of repetition um, because uh, you know the, essentially the same kinds of issues come up over and over again with slightly different facts if you're doing the same area of law. Uh, whereas the variety of what I had enjoyed through the government work, I found very, very stimulating. I mean, it's challenging uh, because one's always got to um, be working up relatively new uh, legal issues, but uh, it is variety uh, provides a, a huge stimulus. So um, I have uh, go on, sorry, it's a very long answer to your question, but I have gone in the opposite direction to almost every other barrister, I think. Let's talk about your work in the Supreme Court. Can you just tell me a bit about this experience? Maybe for our listeners who don't know, what even is the Supreme Court? Um, yeah, let's start there. Yeah, sure. So um, the Supreme Court uh, is uh, the highest court of appeal in the land. Uh, it used to be, rather weirdly, a, a committee of the House of Lords, um, but it has always been um, 
a collection of judges uh, who just get promoted from the High Court to the Court of Appeal and from the Court of Appeal, if they're very good and very lucky, uh, to the Supreme Court. And there's a pool of whatever it is, 10 or 11 of them, I can't remember exactly. And they always have to sit in odd numbers, just in case they don't agree. Um, so the normal um, uh, constitution is five judges. You get one judge at first instance, three in the Court of Appeal, and usually five. Uh, if it's a difficult case, uh, they may sit with seven. I have once had nine um, uh, when they uh, thought it was a, a matter of real kind of a constitutional importance. Um, so the Supreme Court is the highest court of appeal in the land. It is there to deal with issues of general public importance, um, which doesn't mean cases that involve very, very large sums of money. Um, it just means cases that matter in terms of the legal significance of what's being decided. And that could be a point of tax law, or it could be a point literally about life and death. Um, in one of the earlier cases I did was um, about a woman called Diane Pretty, who had motor neurone disease, uh, which is a, a terrible wasting disease. You sort of progressively become more and more paralyzed. Um, and in its advanced stages, if you are not cared for, you can die miserably because you can't swallow anymore and you can choke uh, on your own saliva, which is a, an utterly grim way to go. And she wanted um, to have her husband help her die at a moment of her choosing. And so they wrote to the Director of Public Prosecutions and asked uh, if he would agree not to prosecute the husband if the husband helped her to die. And the Director of Public Prosecutions said, well, I'm sorry, but I can't promise not to prosecute somebody for something that hasn't yet happened. And if it did happen under the law of England, it would be um, murder uh, if you kill somebody intentionally. Um, so there was a, a, a human rights claim that went through the courts here up to the House of Lords, as it was, Supreme Court as it now is, on whether or not under the European Convention on Human Rights, the right to life, so to speak, carries with it a right to die. Uh, in a manner and, you know, and at a time of your own choosing. Um, so the, the, the cases that the court, the Supreme Court deals with, as I say, can be anything from, um, in, you know, really crunchy points of tax law uh, to absolutely fundamental issues of, of, of human rights. Um, and they sit in, as I say, pa panels of usually of five, uh, and it's very conversational. Um, because there's, the judges do a lot of pre-reading. Um, and when you get into the Supreme Court, you don't always get a huge opportunity to present your own argument because each of the five judges will have uh, read a lot and decided what she or he thinks the case is really about or which particular point she or he really cares about or is really troubled by. Uh, and you get asked a lot of questions. So uh, I think a lot of people I've known, the sort of non-lawyers or, or junior lawyers who go into uh, a hearing at the Supreme Court, are, are, are they have often the very first question they ask, uh, uh, you know, afterwards is, are the judges always that interventionist? Um, because I, I think through 
I don't know whether it's you know watching television or whatever, but but I think people have this idea that that you know when one is presenting an argument in court, you're sort of left alone to, to say your piece, which is always never the case uh, in appeals, um, because as I say, there's been so much pre-reading, the judges know what uh, the case is about, so you don't have to kind of start from ABC, uh, and they know what they are troubled by. So uh, it is very very conversational. It's there, there, there's a lot of exchange. Uh, between the bench and the bar. That's so interesting. I wanted to ask you about this. It's a bit of a strange question, but I've noticed a lot of people when you speak to them about becoming a barrister, it's all focused on the advocacy and the speaking part and how you articulate yourself and all of that. But from what you've said just there, it seems like the writing part and the before stage of court is also such an important part yeah. would you say that there's a bit of a misconception or uh, you don't think I, about that side as much i yes i think you're probably absolutely right and that was a very observant question actually because i think that when we talk about advocacy people people's brains immediately hear oral advocacy mm. whereas advocacy i mean a huge part of advocacy is in uh, the written summary of your argument which will probably be the first thing the judges read. Uh, and I, for, for my part, the, the holy grail of my job is to win a case in the Supreme Court, which has failed in the High Court and the Court of Appeal. Uh, so to be brought in to try and you know, salvage something um, uh, that, that has gone against one's client uh, in, in the two lower courts is, is what it's all about. And it is hugely about presentation. It's not necessarily being a cleverer lawyer than the other person or the person you're uh, you know, replacing, um, because there are only so many legal arguments <laughs> out there. And an enormous amount of it is about presentation, I don't just mean, you know, flowery language. In fact, I mean flowery language almost not at all. But it's just a question of recognising what is the winning point and how to make the court feel comfortable going with that. I mean, I, I, I remember one I did, act, as it happens, turned the case completely upside down uh, in terms of how it was being presented because the facts were awful. And... So I started the written argument by explaining how awful the facts are, which I hope, and I think it works, disarmed the court because they're expecting, you know, defensive explanation, excusing. And I just started with our worst point. And in a, in a sense, you know, when, when he's trying to put oneself in the position of a reader who knows nothing about the case, they open up the, the government's argument, they're expecting, you know, justification, self, um, uh, self exculpation. And, you know, the first two or three pages were, you know, this first, this happened and then that happened and then this so and so said so and so, and it was just awful and inexcusable. And the idea was to get the judge thinking, okay, so. <laughs> How do you get yourself out of this hole? Um, and, you know, it was a way of trying to lance the boil, of, you know, stealing the other side's thunder uh, and presenting things as, as harshly against my own client as I could, and then saying, 
but none of that matters because actually in law this is what the case is about and then you move on to the legal argument having sort of got rid of all the you know the what what we might call jury points which are you know the points that look like um you know they're all they're, they're about the merits but they don't actually have anything to do with the relevant legal issue i really love that that's so cool <laughs> <laughs> wow okay um you mentioned a little bit about how some of the work you've done looks at the european convention of human rights and the law there what work have you done in the european court of human rights and maybe again a brief explanation of what that is especially now we've left the eu some people might be like what's going on with that okay well i'm a good good question actually i'm glad you've asked that one because there is a huge amount of misconception about the european convention on human rights and a lot of confusion between that and the european union um the european union the thing we've left is a an economic and political union the European Convention on Human Rights is just a treaty between and, and written by the winners of the Second World War. Um, in the immediate aftermath of the Second War, the European victors sat down and essentially said, you know, that was utterly, utterly ghastly. We have just got to write down on a couple of sheets of paper the things that governments should not do to their own people and get the, the major European countries to sign up as between themselves. So it's a treaty between the UK, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, just a list of all the things that governments are not meant to do to their own people. And if you turn the pages of the European Convention on Human Rights, I defy anybody to find anything in it with which you could possibly disagree. Um, you know, governments, shouldn't intentionally kill their own citizens. Governments should not torture their own citizens. Governments should provide fair trials. Governments should allow people to congregate and express their opinions, and so on. Um, the thing that gets some people irritated is the way those concepts have been interpreted in some situations. Uh, now, one of the cases I did, which was genuinely fascinating was um, apropos the Guantanamo uh, uh, issue where people are picked up say in Pakistan or in Afghanistan and are then moved um, uh, uh, so uh, the claims went to countries which condone torture uh, in circumstances where it was said that British and or American um, uh, public authorities knew what was going on, but wanted the intelligence. Um, so if, let us assume for the sake of um, the argument, it is true that uh, British intelligence uh, tips off, let us say, uh, an intelligence service in a third country, Pakistan, and uh, gets somebody arrested who is then taken to a country which does commit torture in order to extract information and British intelligence knows that that's happening if that is what is going on does that involve the UK committing torture no British official is doing it 
but is procuring that to be done uh, by arranging for somebody to be um, uh, taken to a third country where torture is committed. Is that, it, it does, does that involve a violation? Um, and that kind of, equally, it comes up in deportation cases quite often. You get somebody who's committed a ghastly crime against a child in the UK. Um, and uh, if they have come from another country and they can be deported at the end of their sentence, uh, an issue quite often uh, is raised, well, um, uh, you know, if I'm sent back to my country of origin, I will be murdered. Um, because uh, uh, you know, doing what I have been convicted for is regarded as so abhorrent. They don't send you to prison; they they kill you. Um, so the question then is: Well, if the UK is sending somebody to a country where there is a you know significant chance they will be killed on arrival, uh, is that a breach by the UK? You know, is it sort of subcontracted state murder? <laughs> Um, now, you know, the answers to that kind of issue are not obvious, and they often turn on the facts, uh, in, and um, it is, that is the kind of issue that the European Convention on Human Rights can throw up. So, I mean, the cases I have done have been incredibly varied. They have gone from um, unlawful bugging, you know, if, if security services bug premises or a car or whatever it is without lawful authority is the evidence that has been obtained by doing that admissible in court. Um, so one can get that. I've done a tax case there. Um, a same-sex couple uh, wanted to uh, get the same tax break on when one of them dies as a husband and wife did. Um, that was a long time ago. Uh, the Diane Pretty case went to the European Court on Human Rights. Um, so there's, I mean, it, it, it's a hugely varied um, uh, diet there. But the significance of a ruling in the European Court of Human Rights is that um, the court there, which sits in Strasbourg, essentially tells the British government whether British law is or is not compliant with the European Court of Human, with the European Convention on Human Rights. I mean, the court in Strasbourg can't change English law. Uh, it can just tell the British government when our law is or is not compliant with the ECHR. Um, so it doesn't have you know, the authority to, you know, that the United States Supreme Court does, which is actually to strike down laws as being unconstitutional. The European Court uh, of Human Rights can't do that. Um, it, it essentially, and it went, if it makes a ruling against the government, it is then for the government to decide what to do about it. And sometimes the government simply thumbs its nose at the court. Um, uh, and so, you know, there's been a, a, a long running standoff about uh, prisoners' voting rights, for example, because uh, the government just did not want to give voting rights to prisoners because it just thought it was a politically unattractive thing to be asked to do. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it's a very interesting relationship between... Um, the court in Strasbourg and the, the governments who are the signatories to the treaty. Uh, and it's a very complex area of law. It's so fascinating. I mean, I wrote my thesis um, in my final year on domestic violence under the European Court of Human Rights in Russia. It's definitely something I find super interesting and particularly about whether the countries are then compliant. Will they just pay the fine? Mm. Will they change the law? You know, 
and like you say I think the prisoners voting example is so interesting because I think often we point to different countries and be like look at Russia they haven't changed that and it's like well no no you're, yeah it's absolutely right we're, we're the, the British particularly the British are very good at being sanctimonious uh, <laughs> about other countries compliance with with um, treaties and so on and uh, you know if we had an unblemished record ourselves I would feel more comfortable yeah we <laughs> <laughs> don't okay I'm going to jump to asking you about your role as Attorney General to the Prince of Wales. What what is that role? What did it entail? Tell me about it. Um, yeah, well, it's uh, completely uh, sort of left field in the sense that it's not part of uh, you know one's daily job as a practicing barrister. As a practicing barrister, you do um, you know piecework. Uh, a client comes along with a problem, you represent them you probably never see that client ever again. Um, so uh, there's nothing in that sense, there's nothing sort of incremental about what one does uh, for any individual client. You just represent them uh, and um, uh, as I say, <laughs> unless they're a recidivist, you never see them again. Um, the appointment as Attorney General to um, Prince of Wales is a fascinating one. Um, so the heir to the, I mean, since literally since the reign of Edward III, um, the heir to the throne has had an inheritance, which is the Duchy of Cornwall, uh, which is an estate, um, uh, effectively, it's a private estate, which generates an income for the heir to the throne. And uh, it, it has officers, uh, all of whom have magnificently medieval titles. There's the, the Lord Warden of the Stanneries, uh, the uh, receiver general, the keeper of the records, and the attorney general. And we are what are called the proper officers uh, of the duchy. Um, and the role of uh, attorney general is essentially, uh, it, its functional part is as the principal legal advisor to the duchy of Cornwall. So the issues that would arise uh, would involve uh, estate management type issues um, and you know being an estate um, uh, that has been around since the uh, early 14th century uh, you know the issues uh, could be quite recondite and they're often um, about quite ancient property issues uh, and it, issues um, that you know most other citizens wouldn't 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 expect to exist um, so uh, th that part of it was um, fascinating uh, because it involved advising on areas of law uh, which don't come up very often uh, and uh, you know for a, an, an utterly unique client. It was also fascinating because one sat essentially it was almost like being a non-executive director in a large property company uh, because one sat on what's called the Prince's Council. Uh, which is the governing body, which is a bit like the, 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 a board of directors to which the committees and the, the, the staff who actually do the work would report. Uh, and we would have you know, peri periodic, effectively board meetings uh, to consider and approve strategic um, uh, decisions. So part of it was, um, uh, as I say, legal advice. Part of it was uh, a, a bit like being a non-exec. Uh, and part of it was purely uh, ceremonial in the sense that one would attend um, garden party, you know, the, a, a garden party a year because the duchy always had a convention uh, of inviting 
tenants uh, of the duchy to uh, be presented to the royal family at uh, one of the garden parties, uh, which was charming because you know, quite often they were people who uh, worked um, you know, on estates, very often hereditary, and had great affection uh, for um, the duchy. Uh, but had no cause to come up to London, um, uh, particularly often. And, you know, quite often one was presenting uh, to the royal family people who, who had worked on the land for, you know, two or three generations, if not more. Um, uh, but who, and, you know, sometimes would come up with black and white photographs of their father being presented to a much younger queen, um, which was absolutely charming. And I have to say, hugely um, appreciated. Uh, so there was there was there was that ceremonial side of it um, as well. That sounds like a very cool mix of <laughs> tradition and law, and yeah. that sounds very interesting. Very niche. I hadn't heard of it before. Maybe that's just me being a bit useless. But... <laughs> okay. It's 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 not mainstream. No. Yeah. <laughs> so interesting. Okay. I want to ask you about some of your overseas work, particularly your work in Bermuda. How do you have time to do all of this? How are you practicing in a different jurisdiction? Tell me everything. <laughs> um, I'm not absolutely sure. Um, the, so the overseas work is fascinating um, uh, because there are some jurisdictions which have you know, a, a, a sort of a UK law um, heritage, uh, which still allow, if not positively encourage, um, you know, practitioners from London uh, to, to fetch up and argue their, their more important cases. And they can be any number of different things. So di different offshore jurisdictions have, in a funny sort of way, different kind of specializations. Um, so Bermuda uh, tends to specialize in offshore um, uh, insurance. Um, Cayman, uh, the Cayman Islands tends to specialize in um, offshore sort of corporate incorporations and um, uh, accounting. Um, British Virgin Islands have become quite popular uh, with uh, East uh, European um, uh, figures who uh, quite like setting up uh, structures there to manage their, their wealth. Um, so each of the jurisdictions tends to throw up different kinds of legal dispute. Um, although, frankly, they can be absolutely anything. I mean, the last case I did in Bermuda um, was uh, a case about same-sex marriage. Um, so the, um, the, the issue that had arisen there, I mean, it, was, it is a, a utterly, utterly fascinating and enormously privileged um, a, a position to be in to, to participate in these disputes. So, it, Bermuda particularly was was a fascinating one on same-sex marriage because um, it, it was clearly a, a, a politically charged issue there. Uh, and uh, what had happened was that a same-sex couple had gone to the registrar of births, deaths, and marriages and said, "We'd like to be married." And the registrar had said, "Well." Um, I'm sorry, marriage is a union between people of opposite sex. Uh, and so they took that case to the court and the court said, well, uh, that is uh, conventionally what marriage has been understood to mean. So Bermuda has a convention on human rights, which is very similar to the European Convention on Human Rights. And 
the legal analysis uh, of the court was that uh, whereas historically marriage has been regarded as a word that uh, describes a union between people of opposite, of, of opposite sexes, uh, the law moves and uh, in light of uh, the convention and concepts of non-discrimination, uh, marriage had to be interpreted in a, uh, an updating way. <coughs> and so the ruling was, the court ruling was, uh, that um, the uh, registrar had acted unlawfully in not allowing this same-sex couple to marry. That was only stage one because uh, the outcome was politically sensitive whether it was right or wrong in law uh, was entirely incidental but it was a, it was a politically um, uh, contentious <clears throat> ruling and so there were um, there was a lot of uh, lobbying and uh, a, a, an election um, on the question of whether or not this outcome in the courts should be reversed by legislation and so eventually the, the, the Bermuda Parliament did pass legislation under which they created a concept of a civil union, a civil partnership between same-sex same couples, but expressly legislated that the word marriage could only be applied to uh, a, a union between people of opposite sexes. Uh, and so that legislation was then challenged in the court. Um, so we, and, and that one went up to the Privy Council, which is, the Privy Council is, is basically the Supreme Court judges uh, when they are hearing uh, a dispute from somewhere outside the United Kingdom there are, uh, so, so Bermuda came in BVI and so on uh, when their appeals from there get up to to, to the highest court they, they um, use the same judges as the Supreme Court judges but they uh, ha have a different title they are the Privy Councillors in that capacity so we then had that dispute um, as to whether or not um, legislating to deny the use of the word marriage for a same-sex couple was lawful. Um, so that kind of thing, you know, it could be, as I say, it can be East European offshore um, uh, asset disputes, or it can be same-sex marriage. Um, uh, it, there is a huge variety of work. Do you get to travel? Like, do you do you get to go to Bermuda for however long, or is it remote now with COVID changing stuff? COVID has changed quite a lot. Um, uh, so I haven't been uh, to um, any of the offshore jurisdictions since the beginning of COVID. So since twenty, yeah, since uh, early twenty twenty. Uh, and we, we've, uh, I've done several uh, offshore cases remotely. Uh, but yes, uh, un until COVID, um, uh, the, the hearings would all be done locally. So one would, would have to go out there for the hearings. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how much the courts can, in the offshore jurisdictions actually continue to embrace the technology that is available to do remote hearings. Um, uh, you know, there are clearly mixed uh, feelings about it because on the one hand, you know, they are of their own jurisdictions and they don't want to be, you know, some, some sort of proxy uh, jurisdiction for London with, with everything being done by people sitting in, in, in Lincoln's Inn. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it vastly reduces your carbon footprint uh, if you can do uh, a two-day case in uh, Bermuda without leaving um, WC2. Um, and uh, it, it, it makes it much, much more efficient uh, and much cheaper. 
so we'll, we'll, it will be interesting to see uh, to what extent uh, you know, these jurisdictions continue to use remote hearings when they don't have to for, for you know, pandemic reasons. For sure. No, that will definitely be interesting. I think I always kind of uh, make myself laugh because whenever I hear about like cases abroad or someone traveling, I'm like, wow, that must be amazing. And then I'm like, wait, they're going for work. <laughs> like, it's not a holiday. <laughs> it's not. It's not. I mean, my first experience, I was asked to go out when I was very junior and there was a big case and it just got a bit bigger and they needed a fifth wheel, you know, to sort of carry another suitcase to work. Um, and so I was sent out to Bermuda supposedly for a week uh, and two months later I was still there um, and I, you know, in one sense it sounded sort of glamorous and exciting because you were sort of sitting somewhere sunny with palm trees waving outside uh, but the palm trees were outside uh, you know <laughs> and we were all inside um, and it, it, it of course it's fun of course it's fun uh, um, uh, in one sense but it's it, it's a lot of travel uh, for um, sometimes relatively short hearings. Um, uh, I always used to irritate my children by sending postcards of, of sunny beaches and so on. <laughs> you know, while they were all sitting in rainy boarding schools in Berkshire. <laughs> but of course, it's a big fat lie because I wasn't sitting on a sunny beach under a palm tree at all. You know, I was sitting in an air-conditioned office. <laughs> That's so funny. Such a power move. <laughs> So aside from your advocacy work, from my understanding, you do sit as a part-time judge or a, in, in several different courts. Um, you obviously said earlier that you knew that being a full-time judge wasn't something you felt you wanted to do, even though that might have been the natural or traditional route. So can you tell me about that, how you got into that and what it entails? Um. But how I got into it is very simply answered. So when I was appointed as first Treasury Council, there was a sort of an unwritten convention that the first Treasury Council would be appointed as a deputy High Court judge to sit part time, uh, you know, one or two or three weeks a year. Um, partly, I suspect, or nobody ever said this to me, but I, I suspect the reason why that convention developed is that the career path had always been that First Treasury Council would end up as a full-time High Court judge, uh, and it was a good idea to give them a bit of a sort of test run, um, uh, make sure they were house trained, um, and, um, uh, 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 you know, make sure that that, that was the right, uh, the right move in due course. Um, so I started that for that reason and at the time very much assumed I would end up as a high court judge because that was the sort of the career path I had slightly assumed I would be pursuing um, and then uh, I for you know whatever reasons um, chose not to go down that path and I have then been lucky enough to uh, be appointed to the court of appeal in Jersey and Guernsey um, which are themselves, you know, much nearer, but they're in, in one sense they're offshore jurisdictions because, of course, uh, with with the tax regimes there, they attracted a lot of uh, trust um, and and corporate um, uh, work. And so, sitting there in the court of appeal is fascinating because one hears whatever 
um, uh, gets appealed, whether it's a, a, an appeal against uh, conviction for murder or um, about employment disputes or family uh, law issues uh, or tax, um, whatever it is. So there's a huge variety of work. And the, for, I have to say, for my part, the, the attraction of sitting in an appeal court is, is partly the variety, because if you're sitting at first instance, you tend to have a much more limited diet. Whereas if you're sitting in an appeal court, you, you're getting um, appeals from, from all the different areas uh, of the law and you're sitting with other people. So the Court of Appeal is, is three judges uh, who usually have different areas of specialization. Um, and I think you know, the process of being able to discuss issues in which either you know, one may be the specialist oneself, but one's colleagues are unfamiliar and sort of challenge the way that things may have been thought about by specialists and or you know it can be the other way around i can be the uh, the, the the less experienced member of the tribunal on the case in hand if it's for example a criminal case in which case i'll be sort of challenging and questioning how you know the criminal lawyers have been thinking about uh, whatever issue um, we're, we're dealing with so um I, I greatly enjoy those two aspects the variety of the work and the um uh, and, and the fact that one is sitting with, with, with other judges, because I think discussing things is the most um, efficient, uh, enjoyable, uh, but I think that it, it's a challenging uh, and salutary way of testing one's own thinking. Uh, so um, that, that's, uh, that's uh, very interesting uh, and a great privilege. And I slightly more recently, I've also been appointed as a, a part-time judge in the Isle of Man. Uh, which, um, so I sit there in their, their Court of Appeal, which again has a very similar uh, variety of work um, and, and has the same advantages of, of, of uh, sitting, sitting with other judges uh, and being able to sort of tease out the right answer through debate. It sounds very, uh, I don't know if this is the wrong phrase, but it's very like intellectually simulating, challenging, I know that kind of sounds wrong because no. obviously you're working as a judge, but it does sound quite challenging in a in a good yeah. way. No, it, it absolutely is, and and you know it is undoubtedly the case that if you if you, <laughs> if you don't enjoy intellectual challenge, you're in the wrong job. Mm. Um, uh, you know you've got to want constantly to be stretched. You've got to want constantly to win cases as an advocate. Um, you know the moment you get a little bit blasé. Um, you definitely ought to hang out your wig. Mm. Um, you know, you've got to want to win. Uh, and as an advocate, you've got to want to get the right answer as a judge. Uh, you know, doing the sort of the easy, lazy thing uh, is almost always the wrong thing. Um, so, uh, you know, you've just got to, you've got to remain hungry, whether you're judging or uh, advocating. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.